Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions, and you can visit our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we're so grateful for all the support and feedback we get from you, the listeners. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the most sensational and controversial events in 20th century Irish history, the Arms Trial of 1970. The 50th anniversary of the crisis last year saw the publication of new books on the trial, and Orti have recently broadcast a documentary, Gunplot, and an accompanying podcast series, which both feature today's guest, Dr. Brian Hanley. Brian will be very familiar to regular listeners of the Irish History Show, and you can find all Brian's previous interviews on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. Dr. Brian Hanley lectures in 20th century Irish history in Trinity College, Dublin. He has written several books, including the IRA, 1926-36, to The Lost Revolution, the story of the official IRA and the Workers' Party, and his most recent, Boiling Volcano, the impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland, 1968-79. Brian, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Now, Brian, for people who aren't familiar with this period, can you give the listeners some context for the events happening in Ireland in the late 1960s that led up to this crisis? Yeah, well, the North really arrived back on the South's political agenda after October the 5th, 1968, when the Civil Rights March in Derry was battened by the RUC, and this was broadcast into homes uh, across the country and into pubs and so on through television coverage. And following that, there was a big upsurge in interest in the North and a kind of a wave of emotional solidarity with Northern nationalists, which ebbed and flowed throughout 1969. In January, you had the Burntullet March, the attacks on marchers there, which drew a lot of attention in the Republic as well. And then, obviously, in August 1969, when you had the Battle of the Bogside and then the violence in Belfast, and particularly the burning of nationalist homes and the violence between loyalists backed up by the police and specials and nationalists, you had a huge upsurge in interest in the Republic with you know, demonstrations on the streets, demands for intervention, demands to supply arms and so on. So the North had really arrived back with a bang after October 68. And Brian, was there a realistic prospect of a massacre of Catholics in the North as many feared at the time? I think certainly it was a real fear. I remember when Scott Miller and I wrote The Lost Revolution, we interviewed some of the Republicans who'd been active in Belfast in August 1969. And I remember one of them saying that the morning after the first night's fighting, they were adrenalized and, and they were wound up. But somebody told a silly joke and they started laughing. And an old woman came over to them and said, you're laughing now, but you won't be laughing when they come in and slaughter is in our beds. And she actually remembered the 1920s. And people forget that in 1969, there were thousands of people in Belfast who'd actually been alive between 1920 and 1922. So within the nationalist community, that memory was literally burnt into their consciousness. So across Ireland, there was a kind of awareness, particularly that in certain areas of Belfast, nationalists were very vulnerable. And that certainly from the television footage and so on, and from the demands that were being broadcast on the radio, they seemed to have very little arms, whereas everybody knew the police, special constabulary, and, and loyalists seem to have access to plenty of weaponry. So there, I think there was a real fear that you could have had a massacre or a pogrom again in Belfast. Well, how well prepared, Brian, do you think the Irish government were for these events? And in particular, 
Fianna Fáil have been in power for a very long time under the general election in 1969. How well prepared do you think Fianna Fáil were for everything that was happening at that time? They were spectacularly ill-prepared for what was unleashed in August 1969. And one of the interesting things about that period is that Fianna Fáil were really caught on the hop by the Northern Crisis because the thrust of Fianna Fáil policy since the early 1960s, originally under Sean Lamass, had been obviously encouraging foreign direct investment, uh, building up the economy, opening up the economy, but also having friendlier relations with the North. And it's in the mid-1960s you have the famous meetings between Sean Lamass and Terence O'Neill, but not just at the level of Taoiseach and Prime Minister. Charles Hoy, for example, entertained Harry West, who was his unionist opposite number at his home in Dublin, Neil Blaney, went to Stormont and met William Craig, who was his unionist opposite number, was photographed from page of the Irish press, the two men standing outside Stormont smiling and so on. So Fianna Fáil's policy, the thrust of it, had been opening up relations with the North. If you look at the statements of Fianna Fáil politicians in the 1960s, they actually start to call it Northern Ireland, which up to that point had been a term that nobody in Southern politics had really used. And up to the, the late 50s, people still call it the, the six counties and so on. So October 68 really takes the government by surprise. And obviously Jack Lynch is Taoiseach by this stage, and he offers you know sympathy to Northern Nationalists and Eddie McAteer, the leader of the Nationalist Party in Derry, comes down to Dublin. But what's really apparent and something that I think is missing in a lot of the, the coverage these days is that Labour, the far left, the Republican movement, and even Fine Gael are all outflanking Fianna Fáil on the national question. They're all saying we've got to do more for our people in the North. We've got to support the civil rights movement. What is the government going to do to practically aid these people in their demands for justice? And Fianna Fáil initially don't really have an answer to that. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. In October 1968, the Fianna Fáil government, and Neil Blaney is the minister directly responsible for this, had introduced a measure put to a referendum to get rid of proportional representation. They wanted to introduce a first-past-the-post system in the Republic's elections. People say, so what? Well, if you're aware of what PR does, it tends to allow minority parties or people who come second or third the prospect of at least getting into Dáil Éireann. First past the post means you win and that's it. Now, people pointed out in 1968 that if we had first past the post in elections to the Dáil, Fianna Fáil would practically always be guaranteed an overall majority. So there's widespread opposition to this. Fine Gael are against it, Labour are against it, trade unions are against it, and so on. But what people also point out is that the introduction of PR is one of the demands of the civil rights movement in the North. So throughout October 1969, opponents of Fianna Fáil in the referendum are saying, the people marching in Derry and marching in Belfast want proportional representation, yet our government is trying to take it away from us. And several politicians make the point that Fianna Fáil are just like the unionists. They want to be in charge all the time. They want untrammeled power. This is very embarrassing for Fianna Fáil and they lose the referendum. They're humiliated in the referendum, in fact. And they're, they're quite sore about that. And I don't think it's an accident, really, that by the winter of 1968, people like Neil Blaney begin to talk about the North in a way that they hadn't really before. And he makes the first of what becomes a series of very strong speeches about partition. But I think one of the contexts is, is that the Fianna Fáil government are being outflanked on the North, partially because they have been in power for a long period in the South. And they're associated by the late 60s with a degree of contempt for things like civil liberties, with repressive legislation, with annoyance at protest. I mean, ministers like Neil Blaney, Charlie Hoy, Kevin Boland and so on are really contemptuous of housing protesters in Dublin and of student protests and so on. And they're continually like talking about the need for law and order. And people point this out, you know, Labour TDs say, the RUC are battening protesters in Derry. The Gardaí are battening housing protesters in Dublin. FINA want to introduce new criminal justice legislation. These are the powers that the unionists have in Belfast. What's the difference? And I think a lot of certainly young activists are beginning to make this connection between North and South. That's part of the context, at least, for why the North is such a dangerous area for the Fianna Fáil government. But in terms of August 69, they weren't really prepared for that at all. And in fact, very few people were. And something that came across, Brian, in the recent documentary on RTE Gunpla was that you had people who were otherwise moderate Northern nationalists coming down to Dublin and asking for guns, which was extraordinary climate. Yeah, I mean, you've got to, again, put it in the context of we're looking back at this, you know, 50 years on, 
and through the lens of what was almost 30 years of a conflict in the North. In 1969, people didn't know that was going to happen. So the judgments we make on arms and so on have to be viewed in the context of that period. You've got people on the defence committees from a wide variety of nationalist backgrounds. So in Derry, you would have had, on the one hand, the young radicals around Aidan McCann. You'd have had the younger Republicans, people like Johnny White. You'd have had older traditionalist Republicans like Sean Keenan. And you'd have also had the more or less mainstream nationalists like Paddy Doherty, all serving on defence committees. And there'd be a, a variety of views. So of course, at the GPO in August 69, you've got Paddy Devlin, who's an Northern Ireland Labour Party MP, calling publicly for arms. You've got you know, a demand essentially across the political spectrum. And in the South, that's met by sympathy across the political spectrum as well. Well, I think if anyone gets a chance, there's on YouTube, Thames Television have all their archive up and there's some amazing footage of O'Connell Street in August 1969 and gives you some idea of the atmosphere there must have been when news of the burnings in Belfast came through in August of that year. Yeah, I mean, this is a feature of politics in the South at the time, and it's not just in Dublin. You've got demonstrations in Sligo and Galway, in Limerick and Cork and and so on as well. You've got walkouts by groups of workers demanding intervention. You've got lots of marches to the British Embassy in Merrion Squares, windows are smashed, the Union Jacks burnt and so on. But this had been building, I think, since October 68 at a popular level. But August 69 really, really brings it to a head. And the demand for arms and also press coverage then of the movement of arms and who's got them and who hasn't is amazingly public. The point about this is that, you know, if you're reading newspapers in September, October 69, they talk about armed men at barricades in Belfast and so on. They quote IRA leaders in Belfast talking about the weaponry they have. Newspapers say a repetition of the August events is unlikely now because the nationalist areas are armed. So there's there's a recognition that this has happened in a way that, again, 50 years later might seem very surprising to people. Because one thing I think about the, the recent documentary, which I was lucky enough to be interviewed for, but it wouldn't have been made 30 years ago. There were documentaries 30 years ago which dealt with the arms trial, at least in part. And the prevailing view was that Jack Lynch saved the Republic from civil war, that Jack Lynch saved democracy, that ministers had behind his back supplied the provisional IRA essentially with weaponry and there was like footage of car bombs and so on. And all this in people's minds at the time, you know, would have seemed, you know, as as if we, we were going to be dragged into this apocalyptic situation. And because violence was ongoing, the popular mood would have been, well, thank God we kept out of that. Whereas now we're in a situation where, you know, there hasn't been major civil conflict for over 20 years, but there's heightened tension. The North is back on the agenda. And kind of, again, sympathy for nationalists is taken as a given. So that's why there's more people now probably asking, oh, why didn't the South do more? Or were those ministers really in the wrong? Were they actually right to try and help? I think the situation is more complicated than that, but it's the kind of story that does lend itself to black and white and to heroes and villains. And and it's not surprising that, that people then get that idea from it. Well, that's what I find so fascinating, Brian. And as you say there, anyone who took an interest in the arms trial, maybe people who weren't alive at the time or people who weren't old enough, but people who followed it in the 90s and the 2000s would find it incredible, just a complete 180 in terms of how it's being portrayed. Because I remember as a child and a teenager, it was very much that honest Jack Lynch, he'd held the state together, as you say, and there was the whiff of cordite around hockey and now to see the way that a lot of stuff is coming out probably starting in about 2001 with some of the documents that were revealed in the 30-year rule with the archives but more recently with the 50th anniversary and a lot of new books being produced and coming out and a lot of articles particularly I think Village have been running article after article about it but it is very very interesting to see the change in tone. Yeah and I think that is product of the prevailing political mood The problem with that, though, is that context can be lost there as well. And, 
you know, one thing that struck me about the way that Neil Blaney was presented was that Blaney was the traditional Republican voice of Fianna Fáil and he was always ready at the Ardesh with the anti-partition speech and so on. And that's just not Neil Blaney in the 1960s at all. I mean, Neil Blaney had been in the Dáil since 1948. He did come from a very strong anti-treaty family background. But Neil Blaney was a minister in 1957 in a government which introduced internment and locked up the IRA, as was Kevin Boland, who was Minister for Defence. In the 1960s, Neil Blaney is associated, one, with electoral organisation, with being the, the driving force of what was called the Donegal Mafia, which is Fianna Fáil's election machine, professionalised American-style election razzmatazz, and also with housing policy, with he's the man responsible for the construction of, of Ballymun, with, again, contempt for people who are arguing for more public housing and or people who are arguing for preservation of housing in Dublin and so on. Or, I mean, Blaney is very much a modernist. He's very associated with TACA, the new fundraising wing of the party. And at the 68 Ardesh, there's some unease within Fianna Fáil at this. And some had said, are we moving away from our support of the small man towards the businessmen, the property developers? And Blaney says, the property developers and the businessmen are just the small men of yesteryear who have prospered under Fianna Fáil. There's nothing wrong with seeking support from business. So Blaney isn't primarily at all until late 68 seen as a traditional anti-partitionist. He speaks about it very little, in fact. And as I said, when he met Bill Craig in 1965, there's no record of him, you know, complaining in Stormont about the position of Northern Nationalists or anything like that. Similarly, Charles Hawhey, who actually, I mean, to be fair, says nothing. There's no record of Hawhey making any speeches about anything in this era. But Charles Hawhey wouldn't have been associated with anti-partitionism either. He was very associated, again, with modernisation, with the business wing of Fianna Fáil, with the Mohair Soup Brigade, Austin Statius, Wealth and so on. And certainly, again, not a traditionalist. As Minister for Justice in 1962, he reintroduced the special criminal courts with military officers to try IRA suspects and was credited by the Department of Justice, by Peter Berry of the department, as being essentially responsible for forcing the IRA to give up their border campaign through the use of the special criminal court. So in people's minds in 1969, this would have been for a lot of activists, for example, their view of, of Hawhey and Blaney, not the view that we have now 50 years later, which is obviously dominated by the arms trial and, and what happens later on. And just before we move on to the actual arms, Brian, what about Jack Lynch and his leadership of the party? Yeah, Jack Lynch was seen by, certainly by Blaney and Hawhey and others, and Boland as well, as a temporary leader. He was perceived as weak and as a compromise candidate. I think in real terms, that wasn't the case. The British, for example, far from seeing him as weak, saw him as a very shrewd operator. And he also did have a genuine popularity with a lot of the public. I mean, you know, his popularity isn't invented by historians. I mean, his funeral in Cork was probably the largest political funeral in in Cork history. And part of that was due to his sporting career with Cork and so on. But he was seen by some as a compromised candidate after Lamas, the first Fianna Fáil leader that didn't come from a connection with the revolutionary generation. And Neil Blaney and, and others thought that potentially their time would come for the leadership. But again, Lynch is, in political terms, close to the Lamas idea, in terms of economic development, in terms with maintaining good relations with the North, with Britain. Talk, obviously, by this stage of trying to join the European Economic Community, which the party becomes very associated with as well. And a cautious approach, generally, to matters of the, the national question. But certainly within the party, had a strong following But much of that was from people who just didn't like the other potential leaders. Jack Lynch famously made the speech during the Battle of the Bogside, we cannot stand idly by. But how realistic a chance was there of Irish Army intervention, overt intervention in the North? I think there was very little chance of real intervention. I mean, Paddy Mulroe has written a lot on the security situation in 1969 and he's worth reading on it and I mean he would argue that a lot of this was the need to be seen to do something it was performative now moving field hospitals to the border does two things one it offers a genuine alternative for people who need treatment and again that was a reality in Derry where Altnagelvin hospital is on the water side and people injured in the bog side wouldn't have wanted to cross the river to a mainly Protestant area where they could be arrested or attacked. So it was much easier to go into Donegal, to Letterkenny Hospital or to these field hospitals. But it also allows the army to establish bases along the border. So along with the field hospitals, they also moved all sorts of other equipment. 
So, you know, that's a genuine move by the defence forces, but it also gives the impression that you're potentially going to do something else. Militarily, they weren't really in a position to do very much. I'm wary of the fact that when I see people on Twitter in a very blasé way talking about intervention and forcing the UN to intervene and so on, a lot of that is, you know, after the fact. I mean, Neil Blaney later claimed that he wanted to force UN intervention. Now, how long does it take the UN to intervene? They wouldn't have, you know, the, the Swedish or the Ethiopian or the Indian troops wouldn't have arrived the next day. So had the Irish army gone into the bog site or gone into Newry, they probably could have taken those places because they would have been popular support for them as well. But what happens then if the British move their forces against you? When are the UN going to arrive to call a halt to all this? I mean, I think it's all very, very hypothetical. And certainly I think the defence forces were very worried about the capacity they had. They didn't have air cover, for example, which is important to, to put it mildly. Plus, the RUC and the Special Constabulary alone had armoured cars and other equipment like that. As You know, it, it, this wouldn't have been a, a painless process. And I think most importantly, which is recognised by some, I think, at least, that it would have done nothing for nationalists in Belfast. And in fact, Lynch's speech made things worse in many ways. But also, intervention would mean that areas where Catholics were isolated far from the border, they'd have been very, very vulnerable. And you probably would have had massacres of nationalists in those places. What Lynch's speech does is one, it tells people that yes, we're concerned and we want to do something. It tells nationalists in the North that we are going to help you. And I think the view in Belfast and Derry was that the Irish army were coming. It also then says to loyalists that the Irish army are coming. So it made things worse. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, he absolutely had to say it. One of his key advisors, TK Whittaker, who's, you know, if the closest thing to a secular saint that official Ireland tends to have these days. But TK Whitaker's view was that what was happening in the bog side was teenage hooliganism and that the government should disassociate itself from it. I mean, Lynch had the cop on to realise that that was not a runner. and uh, People didn't see it as teenage hooliganism. It wasn't anyway. But, you know, that people were in sympathy with the bog siders. So he had to express sympathy with them. But I think Lynch and large elements of his party were more cautious perhaps than people might expect from Fianna Fáil at the time. And there really were, you know, several factions within Fianna Fáil. At a ground level, I think people just thought, yes, go in. Let's go in and help our people. And there's widespread calls from all kinds of people to do that. But the actual people who could do that, I think, were, were far more cautious. As a kind of transition to talk about the actual arms crisis, Brian, I mean, is it fair to say then that thinking switched to a more kind of covert role where arms would be sourced somewhere else and they might be funneled into people who might defend Catholic areas? Yes, and I think that's what happened. And I think in some ways it wasn't that covert because, as I said to you, there's all kinds of press speculation throughout August and September and October about efforts to supply arms and, and who's doing it and so on. And also I think Captain James Kelly of the Irish Army wasn't very covert in his kind of travels around the North. I mean, I think certainly British intelligence would have had a fair idea of, of what he was doing. And all kinds of people met him. I mean, again, when, when Scott and I were we were searching the, the last revolution. We met Republicans in Belfast who'd, who'd met Kelly and who thought he was pretty sincere and thought he wanted to help. Um, and of course, the networks then that are already established, which were the Republican movement's networks, are the ones that are going to be used to some extent to move weaponry. Weaponry had already been moved up in late August again. The IRA are kind of missing from the story now, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. But But the point is that the IRA moved everything it had to Belfast after what had happened in August and it began moving other things. And there was never an official order for this. Some people think there was, but I don't think there was. But the fact is a blind eye was turned to a great extent to people who were trying to get arms into Derry and Belfast after August. And again, there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence about that. That period didn't last too long, but I think at government level, people were aware that, yeah, we're going to have to do something and this might be one way of doing it without causing, one, a war or even a, a major diplomatic crisis if we can stay at a couple of steps removed from it. And some people are probably way more enthusiastic about that than others. Well, that's the thing, isn't it, Brian, that it all boils down to the arms crisis, how much the cabinet were aware of guns being supplied and infiltrated into the north rather than an actual invasion, per se, by regular Irish troops. And if we look at that period, like September 1969, you have the military training of people from Derry 
in Fort Dunree in Donegal. And that's sort of hushed up when the, or abandoned when the press become aware of it. But it's hard to argue that Lynch and the cabinet are not aware of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think at this stage, you know, it's only the, the Jack Lynch fan club, which is a very big fan club, who think that he didn't know and that he was shocked by this and that he moved to stop it when he found out. I mean, I think the cabinet did know. And then there were people, as I say, who closed their ears to it and others who were much more directly in favour of it. But again, there's a, there's a very good thread, which people will be able to check by Ed Burke of Nottingham University, kind of summing up where we are with knowledge of this. And a lot of it wasn't very covert. And there was an enormous amount of kind of public discussion of what exactly you could do, what the defence committees were doing, people coming south and having meetings with politicians, lots of money being collected and money changing hands from all kinds of organisations and individuals. And in many ways, it's a very inadequate and also ramshackle response at times. You know, firstly, weapons are brought in. The major shipment that the documentary talked about in 1970 has stopped, but other weapons do come in. Republicans go to the United States with Irish government money and organise for arms to be purchased there. Some of those eventually come in as well. So arms do come in and taxpayers' money does pay for some of them, at least, and obviously people raise money through collections and all the rest of it for other forms too. And I mean, Neil Blaney was quite open about that in his later career, when again, of course, he's, he's far from power and he's able to be, but he talked about, you know, just going around the country asking people for weapons. He stood up, I mean, in the hall in late 72 during a debate on the Offences Against the State Act and said, me and other members of this house help bring into being what you now call you know, the provisional IRA. I don't think he was saying that he set them up, but what he was saying was that we helped arm people in 1969. I think there was pretty much common knowledge about that. Again, I mean, people might be surprised, but Tyrone Republican told me they, you know, they went to Leitrim and they got money from, or they got arms from what they called blue shirt sources, which means, you know, Fine Gael supporters in 1969. And that wouldn't surprise me at all in the kind of atmosphere that existed. Again, we've, we've got to view it in the way people were operating at the time rather than the, the political meanings which are given to it decades later. And what was the role of Captain James Kelly of the Irish Army? Well, I mean, Kelly seems to have been, in many ways, the, the central conduit and the, the contact between whoever's involved in the cabinet and the various defence committees across the north. And I think he met a whole range of people as I said, the Derry Defence Committee I've mentioned. But in Belfast, you had people, the chairman of the Defence Committee was Jim Sullivan, who was an IRA leader in the Lower Falls area of Belfast. You also had people, Paddy Devlin, who'd been a Labour MP, Northern Ireland Labour MP involved as well. Tom Connity, who was a local nationalist businessman. Paddy Kennedy, who was, um, I think, Republican Labour MP and so on. You'd local clergy involved. And you'd got all these competing factions as well, which again, Becomes significant in the later story because one of the reasons the arms crisis is so controversial is because ultimately you have the birth of a new IRA and you have a 30-year war. So, you know, unionists, for example, and also occasionally people, certainly up to relatively recently in the Republic, would, you know, talk about how arms were distributed to the provisional IRA and so on. Now, the provisionals didn't formally exist until late December, but the split had happened in Belfast by September. So on the defence committees, you'd have had people who supported the Dublin Goulding IRA leadership and also people who were now allied with people like John Kelly, who's the Belfast Republican mentioned always in terms of, of the arms trial as well, and a whole range of other people like Billy McKee and so on, who were becoming the provisional IRA. Now, these people were still cooperating at the time, and they would have been dealing with various people in other parts of the North, some Republicans some nationalists and so on. And Kelly would have met those people as he travelled around. And he gave various accounts of it. He wrote his own memoirs. He obviously felt he'd been scapegoated and hung out to dry. But also then he talked about the various people he met. What's also important is that, of course, politics does matter. What the Republican movement had been doing in the South was actually what the Lynch government had been more concerned about in the summer of 1969. And I know sometimes people are surprised by that, but the Lynch government had intended to bring in stringent new security legislation up to and including selective internment to deal with the IRA in the South. They couldn't do that after August because things were absolutely up in the air. And by late 69, you've got a split coming in the IRA. And this is obviously affecting then 
who's getting guns, who's getting money, who are we dealing with, who are we talking to, who's reliable, who's not. should also mention as well, this wasn't kind of talked about in the documentary, that funds were given to set up a new newspaper called The Voice of the North, which was the, to be a nationalist paper, essentially, to reflect the views of those behind the barricades and so on. So that was set up and distributed from the South as well in the winter of, of 69. And Kelly was also, though, at some point, Brian sent to Europe to source arms there, wasn't he? Yeah, there's an irony there because in 1922, they were trying to get guns from Hamburg and and that was messed up too and money was lost. Yeah, so, I mean, they obviously are thinking in terms of where they're going to get arms from. And some were purchased in Britain, some, again, obviously in the United States. Anything that was available in the South was being taken out. And then there's what seemed to be extremely ambitious plans for major shipments from Europe. And obviously the one that's talked about is the one that they kind of ran through all the hundreds of submachine guns and light machine guns and general purpose machine guns and all these things that were going to be bought and through an arms dealer in Hamburg. Again, an arms dealer who was well known to the security services and had a whole kind of colourful checkered career. So for a, a government or a defence forces to be going there, not thinking that they're going to be found out, I think is quite strange. But yeah, there was plans to bring in a lot of weaponry. Well, Brian... You do read a lot and you hear it said from the official IRA Workers' Party side of things that the provosts were a creature of Fianna Fáil, paid for and set up by Fianna Fáil. How widespread was that view, do you think? It's a nonsense in many ways and it never reflected the reality. But it does have, as with everything else, a basis in what was going on in 1969 because Jack Lynch's government had been troubled by the increasing activity of the Republican movement in the South, both politically through things like the Housing Action campaigns and also by the fact that the IRA had begun to intervene during strikes and land disputes and so on. This was quite new, hadn't happened since the 1930s. And in the spring and summer of 1969, Peter Berry compiled two major reports on the IRA for the government. These went to ministers. These were released in 2001. So they're available in the National Archives. And it basically went through the evolution of the IRA's politics, what Berry saw as what they were attempting, estimated IRA membership at over a thousand, talked about how they were attracting a newer kind of educated membership as well through activities and universities and so on. And said, listen, the IRA are short of arms and equipment and short of money, but they're going to up their armed activities. We believe they're going to try and carry out robberies and so on as well and we need stronger legislation in order to move against them but he also then Barry who'd been around since the late 20s and had written very detailed reports on the IRA in the 20s and 30s as well which are in the McEntee papers and UCD Barry essentially suggests twice in these reports that we know there's divisions within the Republican movement about these tactics we know there's divisions about politics we know there's a traditionalist wing who are unhappy with this rhetoric about socialism. And it would be a good thing if a split was encouraged by the church and state, as he says. So he wanted, you know, again, the Catholic church perhaps to to condemn the IRA in in stronger terms. And he says, if this happens, you'll have a split like that with the Republican Congress in the 1930s, and this will tremendously weaken them. Now, Berry is not saying, I want a new IRA that we can control. He's saying, let them split and let two factions exist. And he's talking about the South. He hasn't got any conception really that this might have any reality north of the border because the north hasn't you know exploded yet as it does in August. So I mean there was a Department of Justice file which suggested a split in the IRA would be a good thing and it was given to government ministers so government ministers had at least had that on their desk but that's not the same thing at all as saying that the government planned to split the IRA and to set up a new IRA. I don't think that's what happened but you know, Captain Kelly said later on in Justin O'Brien's book on the arms trial that by the winter of 1969, when they're dealing with people from the defence committees and they're dealing with all these different individuals across the north, it's quite clear that some of them are loyal to the IRA in Dublin, which is an IRA which has as part of its agenda Socialist Republic and so on. He says, do you give guns and money to people who want to overthrow you? Of course you don't. You know, so you give them to people who say, well, we're not going to do anything in the South. Now, it was widely believed in Dublin, for example, among housing activists, that in September 1969, there'd been some kind of deal done whereby the IRA had said, we'll stop doing stuff here if you let us move stuff north. And that would have been the IRA in general, not just, you know, any kind of dissidents within it. And that was widely believed on the ground. Again, it's reported in the press at the time. And Berry believed, you know, that the Gardaí, 
or at least elements you know, within the government, had basically said to the IRA, if you stop doing what you're doing in the South, you can move weapons north, because we know that you know, weapons have to be caught up there. So this is a very complex and messy situation. And in the longer run, I think the official Republicans, to explain their ultimate failure and their ultimate lack of success in some ways, fell back on the idea that this had all been preordained by some Machiavellian characters within Fianna Fáil and so on. And I think it was much, much more messy than that. Members of both IRA factions got guns and money from people essentially working for the Irish government, but they got them from all sorts of other places as well. And nobody again knew what was going to happen next really after 69. There's a very dramatic event though, Brian, which is kind of the pinnacle of the arms crisis in the South which is that an arms shipment, I think, is actually brought into Dublin Airport and the Garda Special Branch and the Gardaí refuse to let it leave the airport. Is that right? Yeah, they're supposed to have surrounded Dublin Airport and, and to kind of told the government that this wouldn't happen on their watch. Now, that's not really surprising, given that the Special Branch and the IRA in all guises had been enemies, you know, since, since the foundation of the state. And even though the Special Branch had undergone big changes at various stages, they'd always had this conflict with the Republican movement. But I think there's also another factor, which is again kind of missing in some of the coverage now. Weapons did come in and you had an organisation called Serera, who had been set up in the mid-60s by people who were disillusioned with the IRA for various reasons. And cut a long story short, they had started robbing banks in 1967-68. By 1969, they were not just robbing banks, but they were actually putting on a bit of a show when they did it, taking over small towns, cutting communications, wearing army fatigues and so on, and releasing statements saying that they'd robbed the banks and were going to use the money to purchase weapons and to aid a, a general revolutionary transformation. Now, no state is going to tolerate that. I mean, it's, it's, it's tumming your nose at the government and things were going to come ahead in some way. And in April 1970, there's a robbery of a, of a bank in Dublin. Gardaí arrived, uniform Gardaí arrived, and one of them, Gardaí Richard Fallon, is, is shot dead. He's the first Gardaí to be killed since the 1940s, the first uniformed guard to be killed in those circumstances since even longer. And there's a huge kind of public wave of revulsion at Fallon's killing. And it seems to bring home to a lot of people that, you know, this could be a sign that the troubles in the North are, are spilling over. But it's also has a, obviously a dramatic effect on the Gardaí themselves, because whatever their personal feelings about the North, there are rumours that the guns that were Sarah were using had come in post-August. And whether that's true or not, the fact is that that's obviously going to cause the Gardaí to take a much harder line. And Kieran Conway, in his books outside Provisional, talks about he's a Republican. He's in a bar in Dunleary on the night that Garda Fallon is killed. And he's sitting at the bar and he's wearing a Connolly badge. And he starts trying to hide it because he says there's these real working men at the bar railing angrily at the IRA for killing a Garda. So the public mood changes very quickly. And again, I think that that has an impact on the Gardaí's thinking as well. Whatever an individual Garda might have thought in August 1969 on the border, the special branch, I don't think, want major shipments of modern weaponry arriving into Ireland, no matter who they're going to be given to. Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me, you know, Stephen Kelly had a good article about this on RTE, but it was very serious weaponry that was sourced in Europe. I mean, you know, military heavy and light machine guns, you know, really serious weaponry and as good as the Irish army had at the time. So handing them over to someone in the north would have been, from the point of view of Southern state forces, fairly risky. Yeah, and I think Southern state forces would have really thought twice about that. So I'm not sure what the logic was, because again, there probably weren't enough trained people in the defence committees to deal with that amount of weaponry. I mean, the weapons that were moved up in the spring of 1970 were the FCA's Lee Enfields. And even then, I think it takes some training to, to operate a Lee Enfield rifle, you know. So what exactly all that weaponry was going to be used for or given or who it was going to be given to, uh, you know, I, I just don't know. Certainly it could have been used for defence. But there's another argument which is put forward, I think, maybe by Michael Heaney and others, which is had the Irish government done that, then you wouldn't have seen the emergence of a provisional IRA because the nationalists would have been adequately armed and therefore they wouldn't have needed an IRA. And I think that removes completely the agency of the IRA and the Republican movement because Sean McStephon, who becomes chief of staff of the provisionals, is clear from the start that he saw the Northern crisis as an opportunity for the IRA to resume its role as the people who would drive the British out of Ireland. I mean, he's thinking in terms of an armed campaign 
from quite an early stage. So I think the IRA would have wanted an armed campaign anyway, whether or not the defence committees got lots of guns or not. And anyway, they'd have ended up with most of them because they were the driving force in a lot of areas behind the defence committees. They're certainly the, the people who had the people on the ground who could, I think, assume control of a lot of these weapons. I think by that stage, almost everyone is having second thoughts at government level at least. And lots of people are running away from the issue. For the key individuals who become associated with the arms trial, it's a whole other story because in some ways they're always then retrospectively using the arms trial or in Hoy's case, not talking about it at all, but but using the image it gave him for political purposes. But again, you could probably say more about those people too, because the names that come up wouldn't have necessarily been the names that people would have said straight away would have been involved in the arming of nationalists. But certainly by that point, it's probably inevitable that the weapons would have been stopped, I would have thought. It would have, you know, caused more than a diplomatic crisis as well, because the British would have been pretty aware those kind of weapons were coming in too. Well, one of the things that's really apparent from the arms trials is just how dysfunctional the government is in Dublin. You see, like, the fiasco of moving the rifles to Dundalk in April of 1970, the fact that this committee with Blaney and Hockey have £100,000, an awful lot of money at the time, and no real oversight, really, from the rest of the cabinet. And nobody really seems to know what anyone else is doing. Yeah, that's true. And again, that might be a way of being in favour of something, but, you know, having reason, you know, plausible denial or whatever. Certainly Blaney, by this stage, has become associated with a very strong line in the North, refusing to rule out force and so on. Charles Hoy never says anything about it publicly at all. And again, he's he's quite an enigma because Hoy's background, even within Fianna Fáil, was quite notable in that he was the son of a Free State Army officer. And there were people in Fianna Fáil who always disliked him or at least suspected him because of that. And you don't know whether there's an element of trying a, a bit too hard on his part at times. But you know, he just doesn't say anything. All this kind of stuff that follows him, my father's people and my mother's people and so on, because his family were from County Derry. That's really post-1970. He doesn't really talk about that prior to this whole crisis. And one thing it does for him is that it gives him the image of being a really strong Republican without ever having had to do anything about it. I mean, he supports Jack Lynch when he comes back into the Fianna Fáil party. He votes for all Fianna Fáil's strong law and order measures and so on in 1972. Blaney, on the other hand, goes out into the wilderness, perhaps because he thinks there is a potential for a new Republican leadership, but he quickly finds that that's largely consigned to his own personal following in Donegal. Kevin Boland, who isn't implicated at all directly in anything, resigns in solidarity and takes a very strong Republican line. But again, he had been most associated in the public mind with very harsh kind of attitudes towards civil disobedience and protest, being a hardliner in terms of contempt for housing protesters and so on, and very proudly the son of a man who'd hanged the IRA in the 1940s, and yet by 1970 he launches his own Republican Party, which again, as the decade goes on, proves to be a non-runner in terms of Southern politics. So the ones who keep their mouth shut generally prosper far better, and by 1971 the Fianna Fáil Party has largely, you know, decided that they're going to stick with Jack Lynch and a much more cautious policy, which again is upset by Bloody Sunday and a whole series of other events, but they don't really depart from that. And they begin to take a very hard line with Republicans in the South as well by 1972. And the narrative, Brian, about the arms crisis becomes, well, it became public with this incident in Dublin airport. Uh, Jack Lynch had known nothing about it. There was a few rogue ministers and there was the army officer who got out of hand. James Kelly. But James Kelly is actually acquitted at his trial, which, you know, appears to suggest that he was really following orders from the cabinet as a whole. Yeah, well, he thought he was, and he seems to have been completely hard done by in the whole situation. And I think, you know, he felt as well that Hawhey in particular could have exonerated him, but he hung him out to dry. And, you know, if you've sympathy for anybody in that situation, I think he's the one person who people should feel sympathy for. As I think I've stressed, I think a a study of Fianna Fáil in the 1960s and a study of individuals like Neil Blaney and Kevin Boland is long overdue because I I simply don't buy that they're driven by this desire to aid the nationalist people of of the North in 1969. I think they probably personally do feel some of that emotion, but they're also calculating on political gain and they're calculating on it being a way to maybe put themselves to the fore of the party, which they thought they should be in 69. So I have less sympathy for any kind of view which sees them as being hard done by. I mean, just to go over a little bit of ground the Cahill's already covered, Brian, it does seem a very dysfunctional policy, though, in 1969-70 towards the north. So, like, you move the army up to the border, but you pull them back. You talk about guns, but you don't actually hand over, although you said there were 
a small amount of arms handed over. Then you prosecute the people who you told to go and get guns in Europe. It seems like very contradictory policy, to say the least, by the Dublin government. Yeah, it does. And, you know, when has coherence been a feature of political life necessarily? I mean, everybody's making it up as they go along to some extent. This was the result of 50 years of essentially resenting partition, but having no policy to make it go away. The southern state had by the 1960s attained legitimacy in the minds of most of its population. There was an awareness at government level that this crisis had a potential to destabilise the south. I mean, again, you've got to remember that the 60s are, this can be exaggerated, but it's certainly the first decade where the south seems to be working. People are coming back rather than leaving, where new industries are arriving, where there's a degree of prosperity, where, you know, 700,000 people, 700,000 homes have televisions by the late 60s. More and more people have cars. We've got the growth of, you know, a kind of cultural youth scene and so on, which hadn't existed before. So I think for a lot of people, even though they emotionally sympathise with the North, there's a sense that, you know, if this goes too far, what's going to happen? Do we really want the cost of what getting the North will mean? Do we really want to fight the British? I mean, people have in their mind the kind of nostalgic idea that we won in 1921 and we've got this state and there's only partition outstanding. For some people, there's a, a much greater degree of sympathy with Northern nationalists and contact with them, but most people are pretty far removed from it. It's not just that Lynch is a despicable traitor who sells out the people of the North, but you know, there's a reason why he becomes so popular, you know, and there's a reason why he does lead Fianna Fáil to overwhelming general election victory in 1977 and so on. There's lots of other reasons for that too, but he is genuinely popular as a Fianna Fáil leader, which I think reflects the mood within his own party too. Whatever they might occasionally say at an Ardesh, the fact is that by 1972, they've really coalesced around Lynch as the only person who's got some kind of policy to keep the South intact, to keep the Republic out of this to some degree. They don't have to pretend they like the British or like the Unionists, but what is the policy? What can they do? And I know, again, there's no shortage of people on Twitter who would know exactly what they should have done in 1969. But by 1972, people in the Republic, a lot of them feel very differently. There's a by-election in mid-1972, August 72 in Cork, Lynch, Fianna Fáil candidate versus Kevin Boland's new Republican Party. And Boland says, this is essentially a referendum. Do we, you know, we stand for the people who are fighting in the North. Do you support them? And of course, you know, there's an overwhelming majority, 20,000 votes for Jack Lynch's candidate and 1,000 votes for Kevin Boland's and so on, and thousands of votes for Labour and Fine Gael as well. And the British diplomats at the time say, well, this shows that the South really doesn't want trouble, that actually Lynch's policy of essentially stepping back is what people want. Now, you know, there's lots of caveats in that and nuances, but I think they didn't have a real Northern policy that would have involved intervention. And they kind of had to pretend they had one for the public mood that existed in late 69. But once that mood began to dissipate, the more realistic policy was to keep out of it. Well, it is interesting looking back at the actual trial itself, and you can see the collapse of the first trial in very strange circumstances, but more so when documents became available after the 30-year rule, that you can see where the likes of Colonel Heffron, the uh, head of military intelligence, the direct superior of Captain Kelly, his guard witness statement had been tampered and altered. And I think after the 30-year rule, Orti had contacted a barrister and said, should Captain Kelly's trial even go forward based on the original thing, if that had been included in the book of evidence and the barrister, his opinion was no. So a lot of things to do with the trial are very, very dubious to say the least, particularly the role of the Minister of Defence, who we haven't mentioned up to this point, Jim Gibbons. Yeah, well, I think you've summed it up well, Carl, I mean, all those things are true. And, you know, the only kind of conclusion you can draw is that everybody was lying, everybody had an agenda, and they effectively were looking for ways to cover this up. Because, I mean, obviously admitting that they were intent on supplying arms to people in the North would have possibly provoked another major crisis in 1970. But I suppose there is then the broader question of why by 1970 does this not lead to Jack Lynch being overthrown by an angry Republican Fianna Fáil? Why does the party rally around him? Why does the grassroots of the party even to a great extent rally around him? Why doesn't Blaney or Boland attain success for their differing Republican initiatives? And you've got broader questions of the way that the North was interacting with with kind of people in the Republic by that stage. And I think sometimes that can be lost, the smoke and mirrors of exactly who was saying what to who in the winter of 1969 and so on. It's really hard to pull that apart. And the thing for me is how the North provoked this huge crisis 
crisis and then almost just as quickly could be replaced by I mean I think there's an opinion poll in the spring of 1970 so post August post 69 and something like industrial relations strikes are by far the biggest issue for the electorate cost of living next law and order whatever and then the north so already like people in the south were beginning to see this as less of a, a crucial issue for them than all these other aspects of their lives well after the arms trial we do see the long rehabilitation of Charlie Hockey and the, the chicken and chip circuit and cultivating the grassroots and I said there before he really does cultivate this idea of himself as the great Republican and Lynch is forced to almost by grassroots pressure to bring him back into the cabinet or bring him back into the, the shadow cabinet yeah it's really interesting again the way he doesn't really ever say too much about that until I mean he does make the famous speech when he's Taoiseach about the North being a failed political entity but when he you know does the the local common circuit in the 1970s he builds up quite a following but the, the thing about it is that the arms trial makes high to some extent and that it gives him this Republican image which he just didn't possess prior to 1969 whatever about his deeply felt personal feelings the fact is he wasn't regarded as part of the you know the Republican wing of Fianna Fáil so to speak but certainly he is by the late 1970s but on the one hand it gives him this great popularity within part of the Fianna Fáil organisation but it also alienates the other part of that organisation so by the time Charlie Hawhey does become Fianna Fáil leader and Taoiseach he's got a divided party now in the 80s you see that party split section of people led by Des O'Malley and so on leave and that's a lot of that is to do with, with, with suspicion of Hawhey and disagreement with him but you also have a lot of other elements within Fianna Fáil who are never comfortable with Charlie Hawhey you always look back to Lynch as the honest leader who was, who'd been unfairly done down there by the Hawhayites and of course Hawhey is never able to deliver an overall majority he's the first Fianna Fáil leader who never delivers an overall majority 1977 Lynch walks to power you know, it's that huge landslide election. But in 81, 87, 89, Hawhey is the first Fianna Fáil leader who has to go into coalition with his deadly enemies, you know, in theory, Des O'Malley and so on. So actually, the arms trial both makes his reputation in some ways, but also fatally damages him with a section of his own party. I'm not talking about the people who don't like him already, and I'm not talking about Fine Gael even, or others in public life. I'm talking within Fianna Fáil itself. My family would have been generally a Fianna Fáil supporting family, and they wouldn't have been Hawhayites. And, and you find in a lot of people, I mean, there are elements of this in existence today, even with the way people talk about Michal Martin and his attitude to Sinn Féin. And I think it's strange as a Fianna Fáiler that he's so hostile. That's not strange at all. That's an element within Fianna Fáil as well. Um, and so that Hawhey's such a divisive character that actually he's a failure in some ways as a Fianna Fáil leader. And also the other interesting thing, and again, Paddy Mulroe brings this out in his book on security, is that for all Hawhey's image as the hardline Republican, one initially a very positive relationship with Margaret Thatcher until the fall. Auckland's at least, but on Irish terms to get on quite well initially. Also, the Gardaí and the RUC increased cooperation after how he comes to power. And the British say privately, this is a good thing, but it suits everyone not to talk about it because, you know, Fianna Fáil Republicans couldn't go on believing that Charlie is sticking one to the Brits when in actual terms security cooperation increases under Hawaii and Fianna Fáil. In 87, the biggest single operations against the IRA in the South in terms of searches undertaken by a Charlie Hawaii led government and extradition from the Republic to the North and Britain again brought in under Charlie Hawhey's Fianna Fáil so again the imagery just doesn't you know chime with the reality but I suppose the image is so strong and again the whole other aspects of Hawhey's career in terms of financial corruption in terms of the links with business and so on all this gets intermingled into a kind of character which can then blind you to maybe what was going on in the 60s and, and what really happened in 68-69 in which put the North back in Fianna Fáil's lap so to speak and provoked this crisis within the party and just to kind of wrap up, I think, Brian, we talked about the differing perceptions of these events in 1969-70 over time and how during the Troubles or the Northern Ireland conflict, the public in the South was by and large grateful in retrospect that they had not been dragged in. That was the perception. And that appears to be changing now. The zeitgeist appears to be different. Firstly, you've had, as far as the South is concerned, you've had 20 years of peace. Now, if you live in the North, it's slightly different. But in general terms, people aren't as afraid of the North as they once were. You've also then had Brexit. You've had rise in British or English nationalism, which has had certainly a an alienating effect on a lot of people. And you also then have a more you know, positive view towards the idea of a united Ireland and republicanism. So therefore, looking back at 69, I think many people would say, why didn't the South do more? Why didn't we intervene? Why didn't we help people when they were being attacked? And you can't make people understand contexts if they weren't there. So in the 1980s, when the North was a running sore, 
and when violence was taking place all the time. And again, when this violence seemed to be so confusing and complicated because it wasn't straightforward. In the early 70s, when there was broad sympathy with Northern nationalists and when the IRA and so on were initially in conflict, people still had an idea very much in the South of a romantic IRA from the War of Independence. Now, we know, studying the War of Independence, that that romantic idea really isn't true. But people genuinely felt it. They thought that the IRA under Michael Collins and so on had fought the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries and had fought a good, clean fight and had ultimately got freedom for part of the country. People thought that in 70-71 about the old IRA as well. And by 1972, when bodies are being shoveled into bags on television and when there's car bombings and when there's widespread civilian casualties, people genuinely in the South turn off. There's absolutely no doubt about that, that the IRA moved from a position in early 72 of broad sympathy in the South of kind of an understanding of why they're fighting. By the summer of 1972, every contemporary source you can see, you can see that alienation is creeping in and that people are shocked and that you get this idea of, well, that's not what the old IRA would have done. People can, you know, unpick that and they can talk about the hypocrisy of the South and the South turning its back. But that doesn't do justice to the context in which people live their day-to-day lives and the way that they go, right, well, I don't really want anything to do with that. And I just hope it doesn't come down here. So therefore, the view of Lynch as a person who saves them becomes, I think, far more palatable for people. That's also then thrown into the Hawhey versus Fitzgerald battles and all the culture wars of the 1980s and the role Hawhey plays in a whole series of other issues. And by the 1980s, Neil Blaney is still a TD and he's very strongly anti-partitionist, but he's also very strongly conservative and right-wing and a whole range of issues which have alienated some people, at least, you know. And Hawhey is a hypocrite on all these issues, which also alienates people. So the arms trial, without people even knowing what happened, becomes, well, he was involved with that and I don't like him, so he must have been wrong then. Lynch, well, he must have been right because he was against him. People all choose sides. I can tell you people watching the documentary the other night, a lot of them had already known what they believed. And they were either hoping the documentary would confirm that belief or they could denounce it as having been, you know, all lies or whatever. So I think this is part of the history we live with, which is of a conflict which is always going to be hugely divisive, which, you know, divided people sharply in terms of opinion in Southern Ireland, across party lines, across class lines, across a whole range of issues, and which is unravelling, you know, as we get closer to the ultimately a discussion again about the United Ireland and so on. All these issues will return and return and return. And... I think maybe looking at what was going on prior to the North exploding gives you some idea of the context in which people made the decisions um, that they did in 69. But briefly, Brian, why do you think that there's kind of, to some extent, a kind of resurgence of, of nationalist uh, feeling or Republican interpretation of, of what went on back then? I think partially because, I don't want to sound dismissive of people, but it's cost-free, you know, now. It's easy to support the armed struggle when the armed struggle isn't taking place. And therefore, people can be far more sympathetic to the IRA's position now that it really doesn't matter. Don't tell me what you'd have definitely done in 1981 unless you did it in 1981. There were Republicans, active Republicans, and people who were in sympathy with the IRA and people who were more broadly in sympathy with Northern nationalists who right throughout the 1970s and 1980s were politically active. And I look back at what they said and what they did, and I'll take it seriously. But I won't take seriously somebody now saying that, you know, this was the story, we should have done this, should have done that, when you, you can say that about anything in history. I could tell you I'd have been off to Spain to fight for the International Brigades in 1936, but I don't know whether I would have or not, because the context in, in the part of Ireland I come from was very different then. So I think we need to, to step back and, and not claim we'd have done things that we, we might have done. The people who did them can claim it fair enough. They can you know, have these arguments. We can look back at what all the different players said and did. And I think More generally, I mean, the question of United Ireland is a relevant one because partition wasn't inevitable. It was opposed by the majority of people in Ireland in 1921. It was imposed, really, through military force. And therefore, it's legitimate to have a discussion about it a century on. And it's legitimate to say, well, look, it looks like potentially we could be talking about unity within a certain period of time. But you're not going to get rid of all these other questions. I mean, I think we should look back and say, what what if there had been a United Ireland in 1921? What would it have looked like? Think about it. Because people don't think about it at all. And then, now think, what will it look like in 20-whatever? What exactly will that mean? And then have honest discussions about what happened in 1969, what happened in 1979, what happened in 1989, and why people did what they did. It doesn't mean you have to give up your political position, but it does mean you have to try and understand 
context too. Well, Brian, thank you very much. And and for the listeners, a lot of the stuff that we covered today is also covered in Brian's most recent book, Boiling Volcano, The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland, 1968-79. Follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your own podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it and we're so grateful for all the support and feedback we get from you, the listeners. So on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thanks very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.